Welcome to Afterthought, a podcast series that puts our present moment into perspective and invites you to think through our world in crisis together. I'm Dawson. I'm Karambir. And I'm Chris. You're listening to Afterthought Podcast. In this episode, we identify some of the unconscious narratives or mythologies at work in our time and explore what role they are playing socially and psychologically, and if these myths are even viable in the face of our world in crisis. Welcome to Afterthought. In our last few episodes, we've been following the thought line around modernity, how the modern West becomes a modernizing that extends throughout the globe after World War II and feeds directly into the great acceleration of 1950 to 2020, which brings us into our world today of, of a convergence of crises, a climate crisis, a political crisis, a social crisis, an environmental crisis. The end of the world? Perhaps. Or perhaps it is like in medieval times when they said, the king is dead, long live the king. Perhaps it is a case of a certain world is dead, long live what this new world will be. But to undertake that sort of a project, we need to reimagine just what the future world could be. And the claim throughout this podcast is that if we can think through some of what's brought us here and is in the present, for example, how did modernity bring us here? How did the modern West that then became a modernizing world bring us to the point of, is it the end of the world or the world is in crisis? And the thought line that we have pursued within that is that is how the modern West contributed powerfully to the notion of infinite growth or limitless growth on the planet as in fact being a viable idea for an economic system. It is that kernel within the modern that has spread throughout the world post-World War II, and it is that kernel that is so key in its destructiveness and bringing about crisis. And in fact, certain uh, postmodern thinkers who looked back at that modern time said, well, that, that notion of infinite growth is in fact a myth. And the modern West developed a whole ideological understanding, a whole worldview, based on its revolutionary advances against the, its tradition, which discovered that space was very deep compared to the very superficial, shallow space of the cosmic understanding of tradition. Time was, in fact, deep and long and, and ancient compared to the very shallow understanding of historical time and cosmic time that had existed. Natural processes were also incredibly deep, right down to the genetic or microscopic level um, across the cosmos and running through processes of natural selection in, in all organic life. And this too was revolutionary compared to the traditional understanding, which was quite shallow in terms of species simply being created the way they were in a certain way. And then lastly, the modern worldview um, developed the notion that our consciousness runs quite deep, that quite mysteriously beneath the human consciousness is, is an unconscious or a sort of political conscious that, or a false conscious that we're unaware of or, or it's rooted in somehow in our neuroscience, but it's somehow deeply beyond our surface awareness. All of these revolutionary conceptions that frame the modern worldview were enormously powerful 
and enormously powerful in making that worldview seemingly natural and normal uh, for a, a Western person in the 20th century. With World War II breaking that power apart, but at the same time sending it throughout the globe and disseminating as different uh, cultures picked up this view, uh, means that we now are in an enormously globally diverse uh, moment where multiple mythologies disagree and clash. Many of them have this modern technological, industrial-based economic understanding at the heart of them, even as it, does, as it does not sit well with their traditional cultural understandings or myths. And it is this complex, confusing disagreement of mythologies and worldviews, which, which is another way to characterize uh, the moment we are in. Well, I think it's really important that when we talk about um, these discoveries of deep time and deep space and, uh, and uh, deep process, that we realize that it's not just a matter of, oh, well, we've found out that the Earth is older than we thought it was, or that space is so much bigger than we thought it was. But even more than that, there's this whole layer of meaning that gets added on as we reimagine humanity's place within the universe. And so when we're talking about the modern worldview, we're talking about a way of understanding humanity's place in the universe. And that is a constructed way of understanding that. And we're going to make the claim that it's a mythological way of understanding our place. And so this, these mythologies are for, uh, performing certain functions in our societies. Um, they instruct us, they, they raise us up, and they also seem to uh, sustain certain power relations. And so I, I think it would be useful to spend a little bit of time on when we say oh, it's a modern worldview or a modern mythology. What exactly do we mean by that? Mm. Well, to pick a concrete example, uh, the notion of unlimited growth has been exposed as a myth, and now in the very pejorative sense of a story that's not true, because climate change is happening. What is climate change? We have pushed the Earth system beyond its limits. Why? Well, the modern worldview didn't really recognize limits. So, of course, it pushed beyond limits. It, it just didn't see them. It was blind to that problem. And, in fact, I think one version of an ultra-modern viewpoint today would be those who deny climate change. Right? Climate change deniers are, in that sense, very stuck in a modern past where they just don't think it's an issue. And uh, their solution to all of the problems will probably be technological, and that is perfectly in keeping with a certain modern line. Right? The flip side of that unlimitedness and therefore growth, and remember that whatever comes after the modern, the current period we're in now is very much a recognition of limits, and we've got to learn how to live within them, which the modern does not equip us to do. The modern was so appealing for so long and still is to many um, because it promised this unlimited progress and growth. Um, and, and so it's very exciting. It's very adventurous, right? It's, it's the human, the modern 
Enterprise, which is not coincidentally why the starship in Star Trek is called Enterprise. That, that's exactly what Gene Roddenberry meant, right? The human enterprise is to go out and explore space and it's glorious and grand and etc. It's very modern in that sense. The, the, the flip side to the unlimited growth and behind the deep space, deep time, deep process, and deep consciousness is, well, who is the human person who, who, who's making these claims? Where does the human person stand in relation to this space and time? Well, in many ways, they're standing outside of it in order to describe it that way. And now just think about that for one moment, right? We're describing the universe, which is this infinite space, an eternal time, and this deep evolutionary process running through everything. Well, humans don't stand outside of that. We stand right in the middle of all of that. We're a product of that. We're surrounded. That's our context. And yet, in telling that story, we kind of stand outside of it and describe it objectively, right? In order to describe something objectively, you have to kind of stand outside of it and look at it as an object. Well, you cannot stand outside of an infinite spatially deep universe that's eternally ancient and that's evolutionarily processing everything through and that's created you and, and the consciousness itself. Like, you cannot stand outside of your own consciousness. So, I don't know if that works as a very quick example of, of how, in a sense, it's sort of a myth because it's presenting an impossible story, right? It's a bit like, you know, what does what sound does a tree make if there's no does a tree make a sound in the forest if it falls and there's no one there to hear it? Well, what do I look like if I could stand outside myself and look at myself? Well, well, which one? The person who's standing outside yourself what you look like or what you would look like if you stand outside yourself and look at like suddenly you're in these impossibilities, which again in the negative sense of myth is is it must be a false story. But it psychologically it tells you something of the appeal what is the appeal of this infinite growth? Well, the person who stands outside of all of that growth is in control of the growth. They're sort of riding that growth. They're, they're reaping the benefits of that growth. They're, they're not affected by it. They're just progressing. They're just getting this great. So, so the human being in control and unaffected by their own actions is part of that modern myth. And it is, in my eyes, greatly smashed in the last decades, but in many people's eyes, it's not. A different example of a very modern viewpoint that continues is the, the, the push for a technological solution. So not the fiction of Gene Roddenberry in terms of Star Trek, but like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, who, who are these amazing engineers who are trying to, you know, SpaceX and get to the moon and get to Mars and colonize it. Like They are like actual versions of a very modern, technologically driven exploration mentality. And it's very exciting. It's very appealing. But now the flip side, the danger side of the climate change, how much time do we have? Right? The sixth extinction is happening. We're wiping out species. Is it worth it? to develop a rocket that can fly to the Mars multiple times in exchange for tens of thousands of species going extinct. If that's the trade-off, whoa, suddenly, as much as I love Star Trek and, and uh, find Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos kind of you know appealing in their engineering, I'm suddenly back and way off and saying, wait a sec, wait a sec. We need to we need to tell this story differently. We gotta reimagine it with a lot more of our earthly limitation built in. I think the need to reimagine and retell that story is uh, so important in that we have been sold to the modernity framework so much that even a lot of the 
climate activists who want to stop climate change and fix the problems that have been created by the modernity and the modern industrial complex is that even they think that if we get green technology, we can continue with the infinite growth model. As in, we don't need to change much, we just need to get green technology and then we can continue to live the life as we do and still have infinite growth. Yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, a really powerful point, and, and it gets immediately tricky because if I say, or you say, well, green, green economy is a myth in the sense of a false story. And when we haven't explored it enough or looked at it or looked at the pros and cons or looked at what other alternatives there might well be or where if we were to move in a green economy direction, where that would then lead us further, if we haven't done any of that work and we say, well, it's a myth, well, by default, the only myth we've got to go with is back to the old technological, which in fact you see in a lot of the polarizing arguments that happen around climate science. They say, oh, well, that's not possible. Well, therefore, the bottom line, and then suddenly we're back in the way we've always thought. I would want us, and part of the notion of you know afterthought is to pursue some of these thoughts through to bring us to a way to reimagine the future and envision it differently as possibilities, not by ignoring the present or the past, but by thinking them through. I think the modern has been thought through and implemented pretty intensively to the point that the green economy argument is in fact a, a much more compelling alternative. And more and more over the summer as I've been reading economists and social theorists and anthropologists, I see more and more of a consensus that, that economically that's a more viable way forward than a fossil fuel-based economy, which is very much the modern. But I think you're right. There is a mythical element within the green economy argument, which amounts to saying that, well, we're just going to shift at one level. Our economy will, will no longer be dependent on fossil fuels, and now we'll be dependent on solar energy and, and geothermal and and hydro power, etc. But I think the sort of unexamined part here is that we can just continue really to live basically the same lifestyles, and we'll just switch what the fuel, what the, what's fueling it. Here, a lot of the the, the modern studies, um, the careful scientific studies, are saying, well, we don't think we can generate the kind of energy we need using just solar and geothermal and all the rest of it. And now we're stuck because if we go back to the fossil fuels well, we're reigniting the whole climate change problem. So we do need to reimagine the mythologies that get evoked when we propose some alternative to a certain dominant one. What we've really highlighted here, I think, is the ability of a mythology to stabilize, right? And and to suck us sort of back in to these old patterns. And I mean, if you want to know sort of how a mythology is really working, you can sort of notice that, I'm, I mean, even uh, Karen Bear, you, you, you said, uh, you used the words to be sold on an idea, or we talk of time as if we are investing it, or we talk of, and we use all of these economic metaphors which I think is really interesting because that really goes to show that a huge part of our mythology is based around our economic system and is uh, very, um, 
well, we're very highly invested in that economic system remaining the way it is, because that's what we know. And that's how we've built up this sort of web of meaning that which tells us what normal life looks like and how it should be. Very much so. And so what is our mythology ultimately oriented around? The fact that the economic system is the powerful thing in our lives. This is very different from 500 years ago to go back to the modern uh, modern West and, and its origins in the scientific revolution, there there was a revolt against the power systems um, of Europe at the time, which was very much the church and, and traditional conceptions of state and monarchy. That gets overthrown, but it takes centuries for the, the science to overthrow that. Where is the resistance? The resistance is very much the power vested in these old traditional structures. We don't want them to go. And, you know, to, to, to exemplify this in a, in a simple example, like the classic one is the, the trial of Galileo and how members of the church refuse to look through the telescope at the moon. And that often gets pulled out as a, as a clear example of, oh, look how ignorant um, tradition was compared to science. Well, in fact, the, the resistance to climate change science today is, in fact, a, a replay of that scientific revolution, but now the power that is resisting science and what it has to say is not the church and the kings. Um, now it is um, contemporary nation state leaders who are deeply invested in corporations that are, and together the nation state plus those corporations are running the economic system. And, and what is the issue during coronavirus is how, we want to start back up as soon as possible. We want to start back. And, and the resistance is we can't start up yet because we're not ready. We haven't controlled the coronavirus. It's, it's, we'll die. So lives are at stake. So the, those who are resistant to the science telling us that look at all of these indicators of the great acceleration that our, our Earth system is, is, being, is being exceeded beyond its limits. We're in overshoot. It's terribly destructive and, and we've got till 2030. Well, to refuse all of that science is the equivalent in 2020 of not looking through a telescope like the, the old scholastic churchmen did a few centuries ago. And in that sense, there is a clear precedent of the scientific revolution, now not against religion in the church, but against the power of that time, which was vested in a certain mythology. The mythology is, is a whole set of stories that give meaning and structure and expression to our dominant power and what we believe in. Um, today, the same thing is happening. But now the power that is vested in mythology that we're invested in is a very modern economic mythology vested in um, industry and technology. To go back to Dawson's point, how mythologies sustain themselves, I think if we look at one of the modern mythology that, Chris, you've been talking about, namely the economy and infinite economic growth, if we look at the left and right political divide, although personally I don't like that divide, but unfortunately that's a system we've got to work with, we see that both sides can, although oppose each other on many different issues, but both of them oftentimes strongly believe in the mythology of economy and infinite economic growth. Therefore, they respond and uh, they respond to the challenges to the economy and infinite economic growth in different ways. For example, on the right, we often get a lot of denial of climate change 
because it's going to stop our economic growth. And even people who might not deny climate change, they might try to make the argument that like, oh, the green future that you're promising us where we'll still have jobs and stuff, that's so mythological. We can't give up our jobs right now for a a fantasized future. And then on the left, we can get people who believe in climate change, who want to address the issues of our modern day, but they might say that, well, we can still have the infinite economic growth, but we can actually do so with green technology. Yeah. Which which is such a fantasized world. Like, how could you have an infinite growth on a finite planet? Yeah, well, to be fair, I'm not sure they necessarily are arguing for the infinite growth, but there's no doubt a big part of the argument for the green economy is that we can grow in this whole new way because it's a whole new set of infrastructure. So in that sense, it's sharing the same mythology of the right, although they disagree as to how to go about that economic growth. And notice, too, part of the point you made is, well, it's impossible. We can't change our job. Well, we're in the coronavirus. We can lock down. We can stop our work. We can. And, and the issue as I see it in this time of coronavirus, is how to make some of that realization go far beyond just the coronavirus itself and and, and embrace this world in crisis so that we confront these crises and and do what we we keep saying is impossible. Why do we say it's impossible? Well, our mythologies tell us what is possible, impossible, what is viable and not. Well, I really like your your comparison with the scientific revolution, Chris, because it seems to me that, well— like in that situation where you have the scientists saying, okay, the, the earth is older than we thought it was. Uh, the universe is bigger than we thought it was. We can't sustain this same kind of mythology um, that, we've, that we've built up. Now we have this idea where, okay, the climate science is saying these, these mythologies that we have about uh, or these this worldview we have about infinite growth or even just the lifestyle that we're living at this time well according to the climate science it isn't it isn't viable right? right and but we have this idea that we just need to hold on to this you very much and and, and now now here what we're doing we're pulling out a certain section of the myth we're not taking the whole mythology of the whole western view we're we're isolating or abstracting out a particular aspect of the myth, and this is very much the economic myth of infinite growth. But the mythology as a whole is much harder to change and move. Something like World War II does a lot to impair and impact that mythology. And post-World War II, it's very arguable whether the West has had a particular dominant, coherent mythology. I would argue it hasn't. Um, And certainly globally, we don't have a single mythology at all. What we have is this enormous diversity. We talked about some of that diversity last um, episode. But what this diversity of all these different cultures and worldviews and traditions, and some are like small and indigenous, and some are like world religious and ancient and etc. What we have there is really all of these different mythologies or worldviews. But here you've got to think the, the, the notion of worldview very deeply. In, in a mythological sense, it is the way in which you view the world. It is what the world and reality is to you. In that sense, the indigenous person who lives in the jungle or the Chinese person or the, the Western person here in Alberta, I mean, we live in different worlds. We have different mythologies, and you can't just like get rid of them by saying, well, we all live on the same planet. It, the mythology goes much deeper and richer than that. And 
you know, up till now, I've been emphasizing because of the examples we've used to the sort of the negative side of myths as it tells a false story or it gets proven wrong or, or it's used to sustain power, um, even though, the, the, you know, we've spoken truth to that power and we ought to get rid of that myth, but it continues on. Right? We have examples from that all over the place. But one of, one of the reasons it continues on is that the myth also, when you say it stabilizes, I mean, that's key. It stabilizes our perception of reality. We need that. We cannot live in a totally unstable reality. We have examples of that in psychology, and those people suffer terribly. Those people don't function well. The, the, like, like it's not a model to espouse, right? Schizophrenia or whatever you'd want to look at as examples of, of a severe mental illness where you have a very unstable conception of reality. So we need a stable conception of reality. And not just a stable conception of reality. We, I, I would argue, as a psychologist, that we need a stable conception of reality in which we feel at home. And here is one of the great difficulties with the whole modern worldview of deep space time process consciousness is it doesn't present to us a picture of a universe in which we belong and are at home. But I do think it presents a story of the universe that is largely true and correct. But it, as in we have a, a, a conception that is true and correct, but we don't know how to find ourselves at home with that. Now that is a, the challenge, one of the challenges that, that our modern Western history is now posing to the whole world. If the scientific account is objectively true, and I think it is, but it's objectively true. It's not mythologically true. What's the difference? The mythology speaks beyond just sort of a stand outside of the world and, and draw a picture of it. The mythology is, no, we live within this universe, which is our home, to which we belong, and it, it, and it has all sorts of demands of meaning and evaluation and, and, for example, deep belonging that we need. The modern science does not give us that. In fact, it works, it undercuts that possibility very strongly. So a mythology that teaches you, here's what we know about the world, and here's how we deeply belong to it at the same time, which is what all traditional mythologies have done, have really met its match in modern Western science, which gives us a picture of the cosmos and universe, which is largely true, but we don't know how to reconcile it with, with the mythological demand to make ourselves belong to it and feel at home at it. And many of us feel that tension because on the one hand, we, we have what science has shown us, and we think it's true, and I think, and I think it's true. I, I believe it to be largely true. But I don't know how to reconcile it with that whole existential sense of myself, not as just an object in space and time, but as like a living human being who feels and loves and cares and despairs and, and all of that stuff, which how to reconcile that with the scientific story. We need to do that. Um, but what we find right now is the globalizing moment is this diversity of all these mythological worlds, many of which are trying to reconcile themselves with science. Arguably, some people have actually done that, but the great majority of us, we haven't. And we sort of live in this divided mythological scientific world that we're trying to make sense Which of. Which is a huge challenge, and let's not underestimate that. Uh, we're living in uh, a somewhat fractured 
uh, worldview in that sense. And we, we have this challenge before us to put these things together. And we feel, we feel the need to feel at home, right? That's a huge psychological need is to belong. And sometimes the instinct then is to say, well, let's just go back to, to the old uh, mythology that we are operating under. But we've been shown by climate science that that world is over, right? It ended maybe 20 years ago. That world is, is done. And so we have to reconcile ourselves to that. And then hopefully we, we have to look forward and start to form a positive vision of what sort of uh, mythology will actually be viable and can be reconciled to the climate science as we know it today.